You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. This is pretty amazing because, you know, obviously we've got Trey Combs on the podcast, and uh, the last time we had you on was episode number six, and uh, and we're currently at episode number 533, so we're talking... Right when we started the podcast, like six years ago, you were gracious enough to come on to be one of our first uh, guests that we had on. So I just want to I want to thank you for that because you're obviously a really big name in the steelhead and and kind of that whole space and fly fishing. Um, but just give us I want to talk dig deep into your book too. Um, give me a quick update since that episode, which was January 2018. So like five over five years ago. Um, yeah, give us a little summary. Have you been writing this book for the last five years, or what have you been up to? Yeah, no, I've been uh, um, I've been working on the book for the last five years. Uh, the original uh, idea for the book and uh, what I what I hope to write about, and a lot of the research I was doing pertained to writing about some the major uh, watersheds, and it was depressing to write about the uh, Sacramento River watershed and all the races of steelhead that were extinct. I've read that there are a hundred different races they estimate that are now extinct, but. Um, but Tom took a look at all this, and uh, and if I, as the writer, found the subject depressing to write about extinct races of steelhead, then Tom said, "This is never going to fly." You're writing three different books, is what he told me, and he says we got to clean this out so we just have a book about flies. And and I actually objected to that. I said, "You know, this is I don't think anybody's going to pay big bucks for just a book about flies." Well. In fact, the book is not just about flies. It's about a whole lot of things that, that are related to the flies. And the flies are just kind of the sum total of, um, well, I guess the flies are a symbol of the history that I was writing about, to put it that way. So, uh, but we stripped all the uh, extra stuff out. And by, I'd say, yeah, four and a half years ago or so, uh, we were on track. We were We had a a um a book that was stripped down and really was what Tom was looking for and at that point uh, for the next uh, 3 years um just worked my head off late in 2000 no 2000 and 2020 uh I'd sent the whole uh, manuscript to Tom and uh, three of these huge spiral books notebooks uh, two were filled to the max and one was half filled and uh, Tom locked himself in the house and read it through in, in practically one sitting. I mean, he started early in the morning, he read till late that night, and um, had some opinions on it. But the one thing that was missing was how we came to all these uh, incredible, complex salmon flies that were um, 
came about during the Victorian era where a fly had 26 different feathers from exotic birds all over the world. And uh, I delved into that and then spent five really intense months writing it. Uh, and I didn't write. The one thing I didn't do is fill up pages about uh, these are all the parts to um, a West Highlander, or a Green Highlander, rather, or a Jock Scott but rather, uh, these are the birds that went into the feathers. It went into the flies and where they came from and why they came from the areas they came from. And it was just an ex- extension. The flies became an extension of the British Empire at its, at its most powerful, most influential, and richest. And uh, at that particular time in history, uh, women's hats had feathers on them. No matter how poor right. you were, you had a, a hat with a feather in it. And so... Bird species all over the world, especially in the tropical parts of the United States and the northern parts, uh, northern coast of South America, they're decimated. I mean, whole colonies of egrets were wiped out, where the the birds in their uh, breeding finery were shot, and the uh, babies in the nests were just died in the sun. Um, it led to the Audubon Society. It led to Roosevelt establishing a wildlife refuge, and it led to a lot of things. The carnage from all that, but. Uh, London and New York were the two centers for what they called hatters. And there were expeditions by the British that went into then British Guyana upriver, and they had shooting parties, and they collected um, bird skins by the millions. And they were, uh, dr- they were kind of dried over smoke, and then they were um, packed up and shipped to the major cities. I think Ireland had a center for hatters, too, and, and that's where... The uh, skins were properly treated with uh, whatever they were using to preserve the. Uh, it was a taxidermy thing, but it, they preserved the skins. And then the then the uh, skins were purchased by hatters, and they were and went into all these hats. Well, um, it was the Irish that started this uh, bright fly craze, and but nowhere on the uh, level. The, the English got intrigued with it, and they had all these exotic birds to pick from. I mean, they didn't have to go to South America to find, uh, you know, a cock of the rock or a macaw feather or something like that. They just went down to the local where the hatters were and picked through the skins and got what they wanted. So um, the uh, fly tying was a uh, was a very minor spinoff. Right. What what year was that, Trey? What year was that when you're talking about there? Uh, Queen Victoria. Uh, Kate, it almost masked her. Uh, realm, and I think she went into power about, I'm going to say about 1840, maybe 1838, something like that, and I think she died in 1907. So she was, uh, um, she was Queen of England for the longest time until Queen Elizabeth just recently passed her, and then she passed on. But, uh, so, um, but during that time, um, Britain ruled the waves. It was a, uh, it was, it had an incredible a merchant fleet that went all over the world and traded in their items. And at the same time, I'm just rambling on here, but bear with me. But yeah, this at is great. the same time, <laughs> um, the British developed a, a method for uh, mechanized looms that would make uh, cotton and wool products quickly, where in the uh, previous generations all over the world had made wool or wool thread or cotton thread by spinning it on a spinning wheel, one thread at a time, and then those threads were used to weave various 
fabrics and whatnot. And, or they could do that with silk, too. They would use silk thread and weave that. But all of it was by hand, and the British developed a method using water power where it was mechanized, where the, the loom, they call it a flying shuttle, there's a bunch of things, but the upshot of it was they could mechanize them, uh, the making of uh, cotton and wool products. Uh, Harris tweeds came from the Shetland Islands off of the coast of Scotland. But... Uh, the wealth, and also in steel making. So hmm. their methods of manufacturing were a generation above all the other parts of the world and uh, more than a generation above the United States. And we all, everybody went through their own industrial revolution, but uh, England led the way, or the Great Britain led the way, and the wealth they amassed was staggering. And so the whole Victorian uh, opulence was expressed in their houses, their uh, Rococo architecture that you saw in the Victorian architecture. Very complicated. Well, the flies were, uh, were a natural expression of that. And oh, when wow. You went, yeah, when you went to a river and you tied on, I'd say a Jock Scott, because that's the fly that's on the cover of the book. When you went to a river and tied on the Jock Scott and there was 20-some pieces of feathers in there, that was like, you know, show me how wealthy you are. Show me what an important person you are. I mean, you know, uh, this is a fly that even in Victorian times, if you were a paper hanger or you worked as a mill rat, this was not a fly you went down and bought half a dozen of them to go fishing. They were just beyond your means. So were the rods, so were the reels. And so uh, this was a, the whole Atlantic salmon fly fishing scene was won by the aristocracy. And I I uh, discuss that in detail in the book that yeah that uh, these aristocrats that I s- described as holding the monarchy in trust for the king or queen these people had the land they had the wealth and uh, although you know I I just throw this out but uh, yeah the wealth during the Victorian times was something that developed a very wealthy. Uh, matriculation of the middle class. So you might have a duke or an earl who had all this property. Dukes were the pretty much the top of the uh, the um, mm, the food chain. Top of the food chain as far as uh, short of the king. But there developed a middle class uh, who had individuals had enormous wealth, just like we had in the oh. United States. And uh, these people, they could go and buy an estate. If they wanted one, they might have not have the fancy coat of arms, but they had estates. They had the way to uh, fish these rivers, and that uh, their wealth created an opportunity for an upper middle class to go to one of these rivers and fish them, and that lent to the uh, lent itself to the beat system, where these rivers like the Spey were divided up into parts, and it generated income for the first time. On these wealthy estates, uh, a person who was titled, he could make a tremendous amount of money from leasing out his property to people who fished, people who wanted to shoot uh, their partridge, um, or people who wanted to hunt uh, their um, uh, their deer in the highlands, their, their stags that you see in all the baronial mansions with one, you know, hanging over the fireplace. Mounted head, but uh, so the middle class, that money 
made it into the uh, titles people. And uh, but all along it was uh, wealth and prestige and peerage became synonymous with Atlantic salmon fly fishing. Wow. So Tom had me take off and uh, spend months sorting this out. Uh, and rather than write down a bunch of flies and said, okay, this one came along in 1873 and this one came around 1888. Right. So yep. I skipped all that and I just said, these are the, this is the influence that produced these flies. And, uh, and also wrote about the spay flies before spay flies were no longer, they were kind of uh, pushed aside. And at a time when American steelheaders went nuts for spay flies, starting with Sid Glasso. They had completely fallen out of favor in Scotland long since. I mean, 50 years since the spay flies. So John Shuey, a brilliant yep. researcher, um, yep. gosh, I'm just in awe of the work he has done. But uh, he went to Scotland and spent... Um, God, a month or so going through, this is before all that information was digitized. He got original documents and started sorting out the history of spay flies. So, um, you know, I knew all the different kinds of, of spay flies. But when John's book came out on the subject, it was a godsend because then I I could, uh, the, the type of spay fly that was in use, I um, used John's information to find out exactly the, the origin for that particular kind of spay fly. And so, um, I, I, in a way, I got, along the way, I got lucky. Today's episode is brought to you by Northern Rockies Adventures, premium fly fishing trips in the heart of the BC Rockies. Premium, all-inclusive fishing packages from Vancouver, BC. Daily fly-in fishing trips to get you straight to the action, and the lodges offer private cabins and the utmost comfort. Learn more about this exclusive BC fishing trip at nradventures.com slash wetflyswing. This is awesome. I love the history. I think people listening love the history. And, and I love that you mentioned uh, John Shuey. We actually had him on the podcast in episode 296. He came back in. And we all love John. He's amazing. And uh, But what I love is the track you're going on here, right? You're, you're digging in deep. And your book isn't just like, okay, here's the fly. Here's the people who tied it. You're really going into like the cool, the history, the background, and more than you would just see in any other book out there. I wanted to highlight a couple of things for people yeah. that don't know about you or don't know about your older books. I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember steelhead trout, you know, steelhead fly fishing and flies. You had these really game changing books that came out. Um, I want to keep going on this track with your new book, but just take it back for those people that didn't hear the first episode of you on here. Describe um, those books, at least pick, pick one of those books out and talk about, are there any similarities between those old books and this book, or is it a completely different deal? No, in terms of research, um, Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies was the first really big book I ever wrote. It was in it was in print for thirty years, and I have no idea how many. It was a, an Amato publication, and I owe Frank everything. He that was my that book was my first yeah. really big break besides the Steelhead Trout. Steelhead Trout, I think Frank did six thousand hardback copies. Eventually, it went into paperback, but. Um, let me put it this way. I, yeah. Back in the, when I first had this absolute nutty passion for steelhead going way back to the 1950s, but when I was writing about it for the first time in the late 1960s, steelhead was a sport of pockets of enthusiasm here and there. You know, there was the North Umpqua just below 
Steamboat Creek. And there was uh, the North Fork of the Stillaguamish on a, on a rare one-salt steelhead that's just so trouty. Uh, it was below Deer Creek. There was a single pool on the Stamp River that was really a treasure to fish. The rest of the Stamp is really, I don't think it's a great river to fly fish. Hmm. But there was no coherent culture of steelhead fly fishing. I mean, uh, when you went to an area, you might hear about this old-timer who had this fly or somebody else who had that fly. There was a guide that had this particular pattern he was that he fished. But no one had gone around, and when I ran these people down, mostly by, you know, telephone book and information and the phone, and I asked them, you know, I'd love to know more about the fly and how you fish it and stuff like that. Well, the people were, were delighted because no one else right. had expressed any interest in it. So um, when the steelhead trout was out there was a tiny little outdoor show in seattle and uh, i just had a there was they gave me a, a little platform and a couple chairs and i had a stack of these steelhead trout books and i was selling them over the counter anybody who wanted a copy that was signable and 20 feet away from me was a guy i'd already heard about and written about and it was harry lemire and he had that huge high pompadour of, of hair over his head <laughs> and uh and Harry had caught, I'd heard rumors that Harry had caught this uh, huge steelhead on a dry fly. And I didn't even know what waking flies were about back then. When he said it was caught on a dry fly, I didn't know it was under tension and waking. That was That's how he right. caught that huge steelhead. So I went across and in, uh, introduced myself to Harry. And we became friends, and we were friends for, God, 30 years. It went on until he died. And, um, in fact, I had a... I used to take uh, I had a, uh, a Mackenzie boat that called a Luma Drifter. It was kind of heavy, hmm. but it had, I think I counted, 14 watertight compartments in it. It was an incredible boat, and I had a, a little Mercury a jet on it. And the company, I bought a factory direct, and the company put a little cavitation plate on the back so it would the boat wouldn't get so squirrely, and I could uh, use the jet. And I could float downriver and fish as I went and then turn around and Zoom back up with just one person in the boat. The boat just flew. And I come back to the the um, takeout and tie off and go in and have lunch and get some rest and stuff. And then I come back, pick up my boat, and head on and go and fish the afternoon pools again. Oh, wow. So sometimes I'd take Harry upriver. <laughs> and uh, he was uh, fishing the home pool one day. And I said, Harry, you want to run up the sock? I'll run you up there. And he said, yeah. So he had his collie with him. His collie jumped in the boat. And uh, we ran up, seemed to the sock, and he said, you can drop me off here. Well, he was not about to start fishing while I was sitting there because he had these little mini slots that he knew. And uh, he ultimately went to, a, I, I gave him a little 10-foot switch rod from TNT, a fabulous little rod. And uh, that's what Harry fished most of his life, unless he was on really big water. But anyway, um, so he was sitting on this huge old... Um, rainforest giant stump and his dog was beside him and i snapped off some pictures well when i went to his um after his funeral we had a memorial for him and his wife was there and i'd run off i don't know a dozen of these pictures of him sitting on the stump and i gave him away at the at the memorial service and his wife got a bunch got some but it was a cool picture and i and it was in the book but anyway, to make a long story short, that book, Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies, 
I didn't appreciate the importance of it until I started getting feedback in the years that followed that. And I realized I didn't appreciate this at the time, but that was kind of the the first cultural identity for steelhead fly fishing because all the old timers were in it. People, the old timers were dying off as that, as that book, uh, like Al Knudsen, you know, uh, yeah. What year did it publish? What do you remember? What year it published? Yeah. 1976. Yeah. So 76, that's amazing. So that's 76, um, one year after I was born, which is pretty awesome. And I but the cool thing about that is, is that, yeah, I think it was a cultural change. I mean, that was a shift, um, you know, I mean, that was a great time because people were doing it, but it wasn't like this thing like it is now. So talk about talk about a few of those. So you talk about Harry Lee Who are some of the other big names, people that some old timers that were in that book? Oh, my God. I can't even hardly remember them all. Yeah, like a lot. Like, I'm just thinking Harry Lemire. I'm trying to think of like, because those those were a time, you know, it's like, it's hard to go back that far. But I guess we could pick up the book and take a look. Yeah, Walt Johnson was one. Uh, and oh, right. Lasso. The, uh That book... Uh, when that book came out, it changed the way we tied flies overnight. Suddenly people right. looked at their uh, their number four bronze turn-down uh, hook that we tied the flies. You know, the, um, uh, yeah. the hackle had to reach the point of the hook, and uh, the wing had to run to the end of the tail, and uh, yeah. we tied bucktail down. And that was our steelhead fly. It was as Gosh. simple and as crude as, as you could ever make. And all of a sudden, here comes Harry Lemire's uh, flies tied on up, upturned eye salmon hooks. And everybody looked at their flies and they went, man, they couldn't hide them fast enough. It was like it was, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody switched almost overnight. Everybody switched to tying uh, upturned eye flies on upturned eye hooks. When did that happen? When did the change, when did that up change of upturn eyes, when, oh, when did that take over in the mass? Oh, in the 70s. As soon as the book came out, everybody started ordering uh, upturned eye salmon hooks, and the only ones available were really crappy. They came from um, England. Mustad? Oh, not even Mustad, right. No, no, no not Mustad. Um, God, um, not, not Partridge. Yeah. They, they partridge. were Partridge. And yeah. uh, it... The technology and even hook making was still in the dark ages. I mean, today's uh, partridge hooks today are not even anything like that we started with. But um, still, the uh, the sweep and the curve, and then there was people that jumped on it, you know, and they started, they went back uh, to the uh, 19th century, finest of the 19th century hooks. Uh, Dave McNeese was one uh, who came up with absolute duplicates small eye and they could you know it got to be a thing back then you know how small can you make the head of your fly that was really important you know it was impossible to do with bucktail unless you tied the uh, wing in, in a couple stages and uh you know tied down the hook and then swept the bucktail back and then you cover it up with uh hackle and so forth but it, the whole idea that everybody studied the fly and uh and it was tied the wings were now tied uh three-fourths the length of the fly so that it was kind of sleek and uh, it looked like it had purpose rather than these uh, uh, overdressed fluffy things that we were tying before uh, and that was I mean I've never seen anything that happened so fast as the influence uh, Sig Lasso had on our fly tying so that book I think had uh, an incredible amount of, uh, of uh, importance mm. and uh, people bought it I mean uh, there was, uh, God, let's see, 70 years after that book came out, 
the the amount of royalties I was getting on it increased. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. No, I. Wow. Um, Do you have any idea how many copies that thing has sold? I have no no clue. No clue. It's in the thousands and thousands. Yeah. Because uh, right after the book came out uh, and the, and it sold out, uh, Frank produced it in paperback. And uh, good God, I don't know how many paperbacks. Or I saw them on. I mean. 10, 15 years after the book came out, I could see them on, uh, in uh, markets, in the supermarkets shelves. They had them on the, you know, on the magazine racks and stuff. You'd see copies of the book. So, um, but, you know, it got, ultimately, the history of steelhead fly fishing, it outpaced the book. I mean, the book was, uh, um, you know, a, a great mark in the sand, and it, was, and it served its purpose. But um, ultimately, it became kind of behind the times, and that's why I thought about writing a steelhead fly fishing. Um, and I did that with uh, Nick Lyons. Oh, okay. Uh, that was uh, the first. I mean, my friends of mine said, "Oh God, if you get a chance to go with a New York publisher, you do that." Yeah. And uh, yes and no. Uh, those the, the way those guys operate financially is different from the way um, oh. Frank might handle it or Tom might handle it. I mean, Tom Perrow will, will hang on to the book that we just did. He'll be selling that book after I'm gone. And he's got so much of himself in that book, too. But, uh, yeah, so when I started Steelhead Fly, when I wrote Steelhead Fly Fishing, I was certain it was, a, a, it, it was I thought, as good a writing as I would, would probably ever do. Um but I think some of the stuff I currently wrote, I have no explanation how an old man could do that. <laughs> You're feeling good. Are you feeling confident about the new book? Are you feeling good about this new book? Oh, yeah. No, no. It's uh, the, the feedback I've already gotten from magazine editors. I mean, they have not written up their formal reviews, but I've received emails from people saying, this book just blew me away. I cannot believe there's such a book out in the market. And I've had comments like that. So uh, I think the reviews we're going to get, I am 100% positive that we have a classic in fly fishing uh, literature that's unlike anything that's ever been done. And, uh, wow. you know, it's going to be a while before someone lock, wants to lock themselves in their house for years on end. to, to <laughs> book. Five years, right? Five years to do this. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, your book. I see it right now. You can get it on Amazon, Steelhead Fly Fishing, for under $20 right now. You can get a, a paperback or hardcover. And, uh, so, no, wait a minute. You can get the book Steelhead Fly Fishing. Yeah, for under $20. $18 hardcover right here. You're kidding. No, no, on Amazon. So I don't know if that, they probably have some special. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, well, those are used books. Yeah, they're probably used. That's probably what it is. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's but used. Still, but still, uh, to but, get a hardback for eighteen dollars, and uh, it has to be that has to be uh, pretty tattered. But yeah, I'm amazed. It's good. Oh, you know what it's coming from? It's coming from a good. I think yeah, it's used and it's coming from some sort of yeah. But anyways, we'll get a link out if they can get a new book. Is there a place? Can you still get new copies of that? No. 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 no it's you can't. been. No. No. Okay. Uh, that book. Uh, Nick called me, Nick Lyons called me and says, you know, I, we've got, I forget what he said, six, 7,000 copies or something hardback. And he says, that'll take care of us for at least a couple of years. I said, I think there was a, I told Nick, I said, I think there's a pinup market for something new on steelhead fly fishing. And, um, I think when that book came out, 
which was 1991. I think that was kind of the the early 90s. I think that was the peak of the passion for steelhead fly fishing. There was still a lot of fish in the rivers, and uh, the winter steelheading was catching on. I mean, I All I right. preferred for the because of the um, you know the open spaces and being able to catch a chrome bright fish that just came in off the ocean. I loved winter fishing, and uh, you know yeah. if you're properly dressed, it was. But anyway, um, that book was gone in two weeks. Yeah, well, so are you saying, Trey, that the early 90s you think was the pinnacle of steelhead fly fishing, and then it's gone downhill since then? Well, I don't say it's downhill, but for me personally, uh, I was on the um, fishing the uh, Skagit a lot, and I wrote in my book, you know, for me back then, fishing the Skagit back then was like a space-side. It was classic fly fishing, and there was a park, Howard K. Miller Park, there where everybody collected, and um, uh, you know, there was a tavern behind the uh, uh, park where we collect in the evening, and it, it was it was as close as I'll ever come to the tra- English traditions or the uh, Scottish traditions of fly fishing, some of their great rivers. And the Skagit, you know, you'd work for days to get a fish, but the fish were just killers. They're gorgeous. These were fish that stormed in out of the ocean, the henfish. You know, they'd come in out of the ocean, and a few days later they'd be in... Um, they still had park there, um, and they were chrome bright. They looked as if they uh, had, well, they looked like exactly like the cover of the book is a is such a fish, you know, a long, slender, beautiful steelhead. But that book was gone in two weeks. Even the depositories were sold out. Nick was flabbergasted, <laughs> and uh, within three weeks or so, uh, the depositories had been emptied. There was no reserves anywhere. They were searching. And Nick called me and says, you're going to think you've got the dumbest um, publisher in the world, but we have no books for Christmas. Oh, God. Yeah, we sat through all of November, um, some of October, and all of November, and came Christmas, we didn't have a single book to sell. So the reprinting didn't get going until late January, and same thing happened. We came around the next year, I think we had two printings that year, came around that, that next fall, and uh, I swear to God, um, Nick called again and said, you know, I hate to tell you this, but we're out of books again for Christmas sales. <laughs> I just I just couldn't believe it. And But the New York publishers, you know, they get a title. They uh, um, sell it. They get their money back on the printing. They get their profits. Then they just blow them out. They don't care where they go. They could go to Costco oh. for all they care. And they uh, will get the last dime out of the book they can get. And then, for, as far as they're concerned, that's gone. It, that title's oh, done. Wow. So compare that to, you know, you might not get initial sales that are that high. Although with Tom's connections, Tom Perro's connections, uh, I think we won't have any trouble selling this book, even at 150 yeah. bucks a copy. Right. Is this book out right now? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's out. out. So where would people go right now if they want to pick up your new book? Where should they go? Um. They go to uh, Tom Perrell, Wild River Press. In fact, if they use Google or whatever they use for a search engine, and they pull up Wild River Press, and it comes up, and they hit that, my book will come up right then. Yeah, you're on the cover. I see it right now. Yeah, your your book yeah. is on the front page of Tom Perrell's yeah, website. And if you take your cursor, and you hit that page with your cursor, uh, uh above the midline of the page, say, in the upper part, like the word announcing, say, it will open up the second page, which yep. describes the book in detail. At the bottom of that page is an order 
you can put your user yeah, credit card in, you can place your order for the book. And uh, we might do some fly shops uh, with discounting mm-hmm. the book a bit for the fly shop, but the fly shops are used to uh, a p- publisher giving them the book at 50 off. And um, Tom's priced the book high enough that where we can make something out of it. But Tom could never publish this book for uh, and give fly shops to sell the book to fly shops for $75. If you pick up the book and you hold it and you flip through the pages, you'll know immediately why we can't sell that book for 75 bucks. Tom and I would not be, we might as well be doing it for fun. Right. This is a nice, this is a high quality book. It's the highest I've ever seen. It's the highest quality fly book I've ever seen, fly fishing book, yeah. This is awesome. And, and I want to highlight again, uh, Nick Lyons, episode 202, we had Nick on and it was a great episode. I What blew me away about that one is Nick talked about his work at, or just how he worked, like how he, it, seemed, it seemed like he never slept. Um, and I always love to hear that because it seems like I've been like that in my life. Is that how, how have you been? What, what's been your success to getting this stuff done? Are you one of those people that, that don't sleep much to get your work done or are you, do you get a full night's rest? Oh, I, no, I, if I don't, because I'm on, uh, I'm on morphine for back issues. If oh, I don't, right. if I don't get, um, you know, at least eight hours of, of sleep and I don't take any, um, uh, pain medication after, uh, late afternoon, because I can't, you, you just don't sleep well if you're on pain medication. Oh, right. But, uh, and then I need really to crash. You know, I wake yep. up and I I take um, hydrocodone as soon as I wake up. But mm. um, it's just the way life is. You know, I, I uh, was, I've told this, I think I mentioned this in the last time we spoke, but yeah. I busted my back up pulling a, a fool out. Uh, of a mare and she was struggling like crazy and if you've ever seen a horse try to deliver a baby uh no. half the baby's out and the mare gets down and gets up and gets down and every time she crashes on the on the stall floor uh she could get cast she could get in a corner where she can't get out of and the baby's half out of her it's uh it's terrifying and i mean you've got so much adrenaline rushing through you and and I was down on my knees uh, pulling on this baby, and there was a pop, and my left side went completely numb, and it was numb for months. And when it stopped being numb, I had back issues from that time on, and no one, no doctors, surgeons ever been able to tell me what I did. Um, no kidding. No. When was that? What year was that? Um, let's see. Let me think about this for a second. A while ago? Oh, yeah. No, it would be... Not recent history. No, twenty years ago. Okay, twenty years. And why were you delivering a uh, a horse? What what was the deal? I owned with that? a I, I owned a uh, seven figure horse breeding facility in Washington. Oh, wow. Was yeah. this before or after you were building the boats? Because I want to hit on that too. Because you have this amazing story about building a boat and traveling around the world. But was that before or after the boat building? Oh, after. Yeah, I had. Uh, okay. Uh, I graduated from a cruising sailboat that that I built and then sailed everywhere with my kids. Uh, and uh, I think I told the story of getting a race boat. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I think a lot of people, we have a lot of new listeners that probably didn't hear that first episode five years ago. Well, I was teaching school and uh, I had sold my uh, sailboat uh, to, uh, that was the son of a guy who started Nike. Uh, one of the founders of Nike, but and he just wrote me a check for it. But anyway, um, so I was kind of looking around for a, a boat, and I had bought a plastic boat, which I hated. So 
a friend called me in the morning about six in the morning and he said hey let's let's call in sick and go to Seattle and just look at boats for the day. He he was also a boat nut. If you live in Port Townsend back then, you just, everybody was, you know, there was some, on the weekend, there'd be 25 boats out there in a race around the buoys and stuff. Oh, wow. And it was, a, and we had the wooden boat festival and we had a wooden boat company that built boats and we, boat building was a big thing in that town. Hmm. We had huge warehouses where giant yachts were being built and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, so we took off, called in sick, went to Seattle, and uh, we're going down the docks and looking at all the sailboats that they had for sale. We went to the brokerage houses and stuff, and we came down this uh, all by itself was this incredibly sleek 40-foot race boat, and uh, it, the winches on it were looked like nail kegs. They were gigantic. It was unlocked. I couldn't believe it. And uh, it was unlocked, and uh, we pushed the hatchback and looked inside, and from the bow all the way to the ladder going down to the inside was stuffed with brand new sails. This is way back then, a long time ago, but um, there was, uh, today it would be $100,000 worth of new sails stuffed through there. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was 25, 26, 27 sails, brand new. And um, the boat was owned by an attorney, and he'd gone bankrupt. I have no idea what the deal was. So we had a buddy there at the yacht brokerage, and uh, I said, what's the story in the boat? And he says, well, the guy's in bankrupt, and the bank's selling it. I said, well, how are they selling it? Well, they've got it on bids. So um, I says, well, what, what are the bids? He says, well, there's only been a couple bids in. And uh, so we, uh, he says, I cannot ethically ever tell you what the bid was. But, you know, he kind of did a north and, north of this, south of that type of thing. So yep. I kind of got a general idea of what the bids were. So just to entertain ourselves on this really dra- uh, drab uh, November day, uh, I wrote out a check for $70,000 and gave the guy, I didn't even have 500 in my account. Oh. So um, so anyway, the guy, the yacht broker's name was Brownie, and we forgot about it. And uh, Brownie called me a couple weeks later. He says, hey, Trey, I got news for you. He says, you just bought yourself a race boat. <laughs> and I said, my God, are you kidding me? No, he says, you know, we're, gonna, we're sending the check in. So <laughs> I went down and I knew the president of the bank because he had, uh, their bank had financed my uh, cruising sailboat, the one that I had built. And they put money into it, and they felt that was really a good deal because when I sold the boat, it sold for many times over what they had loaned me the money for. So oh, the, wow. bank, the bank had confidence in the fact that, you know, I could um, stand behind something like that and it would work. So I went in there literally on my knees and I told the, um, the bank president, you're going to kill me for, for doing this. But I wrote a check out for $70,000 to buy this boat and I don't have any money. Can you make the check good temporarily so we can figure out a way to raise the money? First, he was pissed off, and then he started laughing. And he says, yeah, we'll cover it. But, boy, he says, I'm going to take it out of your hide. Well, they took a second on my house, and I just finished building a new home. So, no sweat. So, we, um, this, my friend and I went to Seattle, and we uh, got the boat and drove it and sailed it or motored it home. Mm. To Port Townsend? Yeah. we. My uh, People assume that... Uh, that some relative of ours had died and left me a ton of money. And uh, so we we campaigned that boat. 
for a couple of years in all the major races in the Northwest. Wow. And uh, we really learned how to race um, uh, sailboats. It was a whole new thing compared to cruising. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, who puts together remote Alaskan wilderness trips for that bucket list trip of a lifetime. And these aren't your typical lodge-style trips or DIYing it. This is basically floating down the river in remote Alaska with the rainbows, the bears, and all the critters out there, but getting the luxurious uh, comforts of camping with tents and cots and good food and all that stuff. We've had Adam on in a number of episodes here and uh, and actually just give away a big trip uh, this year up to Alaska. So he's been doing some good stuff. Adam and the crew have done a great job. We were on a trip with them down on this uh, this remote section. We had the Northern Lights uh, one night. We had um, beautiful floating down the river. We had white water, uh, good food, big campfires, uh, you name it. Got some nice big rainbows, got some coho. It was just an epic all-around trip, and it definitely was a trip of a lifetime. You can head over right now if you want to check this out, wetflyswing.com slash fishhound, and check in with Adam and pick his brain to see what kind of trips they have on the list. I know they're filling up quick, so if you want to get in there for this next year, uh, check out Fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-T, to connect with Adam and the crew over the Fishhound. And you support this podcast by clicking through that link and, uh, and checking in with the crew. Okay, back to the show. What type of boat was it? If you had to describe, somebody want to look it up. What was the boat called? What type of boat? It's a what they call a two-ton class. It was uh, I don't know what, fifteen, eighteen thousand pounds. Is there a name of the like the boat manufacturer? CNC. It's a Canadian-built boat. CNC two-ton class, forty foot. What year was it? Gosh, I don't know when it would be. Is that like an older, like nineteen sixty boat or something? Oh no 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 it was. Um, Late seventies. Okay. Yeah. 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 And um but you know, there's boats and boats and uh they were uh what was coming out at the time were some super fast race boats. There were Baltic Core and, and whatnot kind of stripped out. And I was intrigued and eventually we sold the boat or I sold the boat to a guy that entered it in the Vic Maui. Mm. And uh that was a tr- uh, there's two transpac races here. I'm just bear with me, but yeah, the, first, the one transpac goes from Los Angeles to Honolulu, and the other transpac goes from Victoria, British Columbia to Lahaina, and that's the one that was that I really was interested in. So I had this new boat, and we campaigned it for a year with a crew, and we had a celebrated a, a, a world navigator train us for heavy weather sailing. How to how to make this boat? Uh, it would surf. Unlike the old boat that I had, this boat would surf. It became a surfboard on big ocean. Oh, really? Yeah, it was breathtaking. You watch the you watch the uh, the uh, knot meter just start rolling up as you pick up a wave and you start surfing. And the boat ultimately is doing over twenty knots, and it is out of the water except for the cockpit. The whole bow is out of the water. And you got this huge um, rooster tail behind the boat, and then you come off that, and your boat, your spinnaker buries the bow of the boat until the water comes all the way up to the house, and then it slowly lifts, and you're surfing again. It's amazing. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I entered the boat in the Big Maui, and 
we got perfect weather for our boat. I mean, the perfect kind of heavy-duty winds. And there was a full gale that went through the fleet. And it was so severe, the winds were so high, that 50, 60, 70 knot winds were so high that the fleet just went into survival mode. And uh, we had put that boat through living hell in heavy weather. And uh, so when the, when the uh, gale hit us, we just kept up a spinnaker for three days. And we were running with the 60 and 70 foot uh, ultra boats. Um, the, there was a radio station in, uh, in Seattle that was broadcasting the race each day. And uh, they, they were sure that, uh, that our navigator had misplaced us because we were, we were up with the, um, mag, uh, the mega boats, you know. But anyway, we, we won that race for our class and broke the Transpac record by oh, wow. hours. Yeah. How long did it take you? What was the how long did it take you to do that from from coast to coast to it was about 13 days. And from uh, we had you, when you leave Victoria, you have to go through Race Rocks. Getting out of the Straits of Juan de Fuca is a pain in the ass because the currents are so strong running against you. You can look like you're sailing like a bat out of hell and the tide's so much against you you're making one or two knots over the bottom is what's happening. But once we got out and onto the Washington coast, and we and uh, the guy who bought my boat, my old boat, the uh, CNC boat. But just before we left, he came down. He was in the race. He says, "You know, I'm going to beat your sorry ass with your own boat." <laughs> and uh, and when we broke out of uh, the Strait of Juan de Fuca, it was like four in the morning, and it was foggy, and it was light winds going, and we crossed tacks with this my old boat, and uh, he was on one tack, and I was on the other, and like crossed in front of him uh, by just a bit and kind of waved at him. And uh, then the gale hit, and uh, our boat began surfing, and we we just buried him. I mean, uh, it was, it, well, God. you know, I, I can't even, you know, our noon to noons, three noon to noons we had uh, were the best ever done by a boat under 40 feet, or 40 feet, say. Wow. the CNC. Yeah, how many people can that boat sleep? Were you guys, is that how you do it? Some Somebody'd sleep and then somebody'd be steering the boat? Yeah, you sail around the clock, of course. But uh, we had the three on, three off. Okay, so th- and it would fit. So six people comfortably. That was like in the cabin. You can get six people. Oh, you could easily bunk. You could eat bunk six or seven. And we had the bunks changed over to where we had pilot bunks. We had like hammocks hanging from the inside of the boat. So... Oh, cool. As the boat was, because uh, sometimes the boat would go into death rolls where the spinnaker was dragging the boat around. Uh, terrifying, actually. Is the spinnaker, is that the thing that sticks out under the boat? Spinnaker is a big balloon-like sail. Oh, oh, the sail. Yeah, it's the sail. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah I got to get my language up for the boat. Yeah, that's the sail. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, the <laughs> spinnaker is, you know, when I first got into sailing, you know, you'd keep a spinnaker up the boat until the winds were, like, 12, 15 miles an hour, and then you took it down. And we were running spinnakers in winds of over 50 miles an hour. And part of the reason was that the boat would go so fast that the uh, amount of wind on the boat was reduced the faster you went. You know, that's an old, an old, old-time nautical thing where they had the huh. uh, clipper ships of, of old the clipper ships could reduce the amount of uh, apparent wind on the boat because they would go faster. So you're oh, actually, wow. you know, if you're if you got a really if you got 50 miles an hour wind, and you got really a pokey boat. You might have 45 miles an hour wind on you, 
But if you've got a, a boat that's just screaming fast, you might only have 30 miles of wind on the boat. Huge difference. Oh, wow. So, uh, but anyway, that's, that's a long crazy. story. But I, uh, yeah, yeah. How did you learn to sail? Was, oh, that a, was that an easy process? Or was that, were you young? Oh, yeah. No, I've wanted to, I, I, I'd, I'd wanted a sailboat in the worst way for so many years. I just uh, wanted to get down where I could, I could, uh, you know, walk around below decks was just, I don't know. What, was that more of a passion, Trey? Was that as an equal passion to like your steelhead fishing? Do you think they were kind of equal? I'm not sure which one came first. Yeah, no, the steelhead came first, but uh, the, uh, the, and the steelheading remained, but during the, uh, I spent three years building that boat, and uh, I had a, a shop, first indoors and then out underneath this big canvas that covered the whole boat, and I had a whole machine shop set up there. I mean, I had band saws and table saws and lathes and all kinds of stuff, and uh, I'd studied boat building with a guy for a year before I began this project. So, But during that time, I didn't fish or do anything. Uh, all I did was work on the boat. Oh, wow. And you knew how to sail already at that point? Yes. Yeah, no, and but not, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, what we call gunk holing, where you uh, sail from, you motor and sail from one anchorage to the next. It's a big difference from that, uh, or where you're sailing from, you know, Tahiti to Hawaii and that sort of thing. Right. Huge difference between that and trying to race, and especially racing offshore. Um Racing offshore is a whole nother. I mean, that's 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 frightening. Right? Is that pretty dangerous? Yeah. No. It, it's uh, all kinds of hell can break loose. I mean, um, you're going down the face of a giant wave and you're surfing. I mean, I, I was in the talking about sea stories. I was in the Southern Straits Classic in the Canadian race, and I had my go fast boat. This is prior to the to the Vic Maui race to Hawaii. And um, the waves were incredibly steep, and we were surfing like crazy, and and, uh, we went up a wave, and then another wave was right on it. I mean, so we had two waves, and we were just rocketing, and all of a sudden the second wave just dropped us, and we went down the face of the second wave, and the boat went under, and the, uh, uh, the stern wave was off the mast. The whole boat was underwater. Damnedest thing I've ever seen. Our bow guy was up in the bow looking for, uh, making sure we weren't running into shallow water. He was lifted up, and he floated by me. I was in the on the wheel in the cockpit, and we grabbed him. Uh, yeah, and, you know, on the Vic Maui, we suffered a complete knockdown. We could have had the boat uh, go out from underneath us where, you know, if, you're, if your um, hatch is wide open and you get knocked down and the, and the ocean starts rushing into your boat, it'll sink out of sight right below you. I mean, it's gone <sighs> like boom. And wow. we had a knockdown, and our um, one of the crew members had a, a instantly had a, a razor sharp knife, and he he see your mast as you go down, you get knocked down. Your mast is on the is flat in the water, and the ocean pins you down because the ocean is over is over the top of your sail. Jeez. So uh, what he did is he uh, cut the, uh, the the rigging or the whatever you call it. He cut the ropes to the uh, mainsail, and so uh, we were not pinned down any longer. And, you know, this was off of Cape Mendocino, California, terrific, horrible seas. 
But, um, yeah, we had plenty of extra line. We just re-rigged the mainsail in a few minutes. We were off and running again. It broke our uh, life jackets. Our life preservers were on the side of the boat. We had to do that by one of the rules of the race. But anyway, they we had dye markers so that if we had to abandon the ship, the dye markers would go out and, and explode. Mm. And uh, they broke loose when we got knocked down, and uh, so that we came into Lahaina, and the boat was all mustard yellow on one side from the knockdown. But yeah, no, I, when I finished that, you know, I didn't, I didn't have my fill of racing. I, I wanted to campaign a boat in the, in the Southern Ocean in the South. That uh, I wanted so badly, I wanted so badly to do one of the maxi boats, uh, and I, our navigator, he owned this. Starpath School of Navigation in Seattle. And about three months after the race in Tulahaina, he called me and said, you know, I've got an offer here for you. A Japanese electronics firm is building a carbon fiber uh, 90-foot boat. And he said, it'll be the fastest monohull ever built. And I've put your name in there for a watch captain. You know, I wanted, I know this sounds really um, just hysterical almost, but the idea of doing that Whitbread around the world and uh, going through the Roaring Forties and stuff. And now, I'd have broken down old man, and it seems like total b- But back then, you know, I could have got a job as a watch captain. There's two on the boat, and then there's an overall guy. And uh, so to do a watch captain, to drive a big boat like that around the in a, around mm. the world race would have been just... All right. How big is that boat? How big is the Maxi? Oh, those are all, you know, the Maxi boats, 80, 70, 80 feet, that's... Yeah, so they're twice as big as your CNC. Oh yeah, I mean, and they're so powerful. And the new ones, I mean, they're the horsepower that their sails generate. You just you can't imagine. And they have electronic winches. It's a whole nother game. The the boats are so wide that they have two wheels in the cockpit. There's two. Oh uh, wow. Yeah, when you're on one tack, you, you're on one wheel. When you're in the other tack, you go on the other wheel back and forth like that. Um, but when I finished, I was. That's an expensive hobby for a school teacher and a writer. Oh, right. And so uh, I had a chance to, uh, I always loved, I always loved uh, livestock and, and horses and, and I loved, you know, in a way farming. And so I had this uh, big ranch with uh, horse breeding and uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but anyway, that's a long story about how I screwed my mm. back up. But anyway, that's the origin for that's right. That's your back. Back to your back. Right? <laughs> yeah, back cool. Back. Well, this is great. So where can people, I, I want to be, you know, this is great because there's all sorts of information here. I want to go back a little bit back to the steelhead and talk um, mm-hmm. conservation just for a little bit, because I know you were saying there was this turning point in the nineties where you saw maybe that was the pinnacle things were going downhill. Were they going downhill mainly because runs were going down or why do you think the changes and then talk about the steelhead runs? Cause I know you've been a big, um, you've been outspoken out there about some of the, and to where we are now where lots of these runs are even, it's not even getting better, right? No. And, and I can't tell you why it could be ocean warming and that their feed sources are changing. Um, on the high seas, steelhead eat, um, squid and krill. And, uh, I've studied the uh, um, the distribution of krill in the North Pacific. It's so everywhere that the uh, young young steelhead. By the way, steelhead, unlike any other species of salmonid in our neck of the woods, steelhead hit the uh, ocean from the river. These smolts, and they just take off. 
They don't hang on the continental shelf. And they just follow the sun. And uh, they'll go, you know, they'll end up, their migratory habits uh, take them to the rich feeding grounds south of the uh, Lucians. But some of them will go all the way into the next, uh, into the eastern hemisphere and uh, go into uh, Russian waters in, in that first year. Just, you know, it's hard to imagine that a small born in Idaho could end up in Russian waters that same year, but they do by that mm. fall. But And then cold weather pushes them back. But I don't know what's, what's at work. Um, yeah. There's such a demand for fish products internationally. There's so much pressure on them that, and, and you know, I keep looking for nefarious um, things happening to them. Um, not going back for just let me jump back for just a second, David. Yeah. I had a boat that I hated, and I got an opportunity to sell it to a couple in San Francisco if I would take them down on the yacht, uh, yacht delivery. And uh, I didn't want to get in the shipping lanes with a boat that was stripped out. I had no no navigational equipment other than an old radio direction finder. So we stuck about 20 miles off the coast, and I woke up the the first morning. I had a I hired a buddy to help me uh, take the watches. And I got up in the morning, and, and we'd seen all these lights all over the place during the night. And I woke up in the morning, and I was in the middle of a huge Russian fishing fleet that went on for 50 miles. And there was a factory ship in the middle that processed all the fish and froze everything. And, uh, you know, there was no notice of it. These guys were catching the bottom fish on the continental shelf. And, you know, I just wondered, like, do we really know what's going on? Um, the... Uh, the Chinese boats that are out there longlining and stuff, they've got numbers painted on the top of their boats that you can see from, from the air. So you can kind of monitor if these guys are breaking over. They're restricted to uh, their areas to fish. They can't get north and, and get into uh, salmon stocks, but the Russians can. They're, they're part of an international uh, treaty between the United States, Canada, Japan, and, and Russia. And, uh, so I don't know what's at work, whether their uh, feed is disappearing, but it's really something. I mean, and the other thing is that um, the best stocks we have left in the world, wild steelhead, at least in the state of Washington, is the winter fish on the west side of the Olympic Peninsula. And uh, that's a long story, but um, those fish are still taken commercially, as, as many as they can get by the Quinaults and whatnot. And it's, to me, that's so tragic. And I've known, I've been involved with the Quinaults. I, a few years back, I did a long article for the um, Drake magazine, and I sent the article to the uh, Tribal Council and the Quinaults to have them read it and uh, make sure they that I wasn't going to piss anybody off. And uh, they wrote me back and said, you know, we're good to go, and we appreciate the courtesy. But still, they have a plant. You know, they have seven miles of the lower river which is netted, and they have a fish processing plant down in Tahoe, and uh, they market uh, fresh steelhead to the biggest restaurants. Special stuff, not hatchery stuff. Like they, when they say, when you see hatchery fish in Safeway from the Quinault, that's all hatchery. But you know, they're in March. They're catching big wild steelhead and boxing them up in wax boxes and shipping them to restaurants on ice and stuff. I mean, um, the fish, not the restaurants, but. But anyway, yeah, um, I do worry about it. 
Yeah, and when you know when I was fishing the the Skagit, um, the Skagit run was a fraction of what it had been. Uh, when I first came to Washington State, I mean the Skagit run was pumping out I don't know twenty thirty thousand steelhead a year. It was astronomical. Wow. wow. And by the time I fished the Quinault, uh, it was the, the the runs were way way down. At the same time, uh, we were. You know, fresh kids on the block with his, with spay rods, and uh, the camaraderie, the discovery. I mean, like spay rods were new. Um, fly rod companies were, for the first time, were designing and building uh, modern spay rods for American fly fishers, not for Europeans, not for Finns, Swedes, Norwegians, but for Americans. They're different, but um, you know, at the same time, Sig uh, Glasses flies were coming in into play and we had new spay flies new rods and reels new fly lines uh, god the fly lines were we'd been hand making fly lines that were in effect like the predecessors to the wind cutters and those handmade fly lines fished like crazy they were really good um but anyway it was to me it was an exciting time and we caught fish and uh, the skagit finally had to be closed from just lack of fish Right, lack of fish. So, did you get into spay the spay game and spay casting and rods early on, or how did that look? Because I, I th- I've heard some stories about that. It wasn't in the seventies. It wasn't really popular. Were you seeing any spay rods back then? Uh, not much. Uh, this was something that really we got into in the eighties. Yeah. And uh, I was not familiar with them at all. And I had a, a spay rod. It was an old spay rod that I got sent to me by Orvis. And uh, it was really a clunky rod, and Orvis now makes, as you know, they've changed completely. Yeah. But at the time, it was really a rod. And um, I was going up to fish uh, the Skagit for a week. I just uh, called in a, a vacation, and I uh, I was teaching school at the time. And uh, so they just docked me uh, 180th of my annual salary for every day I was gone. So I took, would take off a week and then both weekends. So I'd get nine, uh, nine days in there, and I'd be there. You know, I'd I'd go there um, Friday night or whatever it was. I'd arrive the night before and I'd be fishing for nine days, and I wouldn't leave until the ninth day in the dark and head home. So it was a great break, and uh, I'd been fishing so much that my elbow, I had tennis elbow. And I'd gone to the doctor, and he'd given me one of the early uh, uh, shots that they were giving, like the uh, pro football players forgot. That was so painful. Jammed it in my elbow. But I was, uh, you know, I was able to fish better. But anyway, I was, I drove into uh, uh, the Steelhead Park, and I was at the gas station getting my gas cans filled up for my uh, little jet engine, uh, my, my Mercury jet engine. And I reached over the gunnel of the boat and grabbed one of the cans of gas, and I lifted it up. And as I did, it was there was a pop in my elbow, mm. and my elbow hurt so bad, I was like I'd like I broke it. And so the next day, I mean, I had nine days in front of me, and uh, so the next day uh, I could not cast. So the next day I grabbed my spay rod and I cast overhand with it, and uh, so that whole. And my elbow, you know, with uh, a lot of aspirin and whatnot, the elbow was uh, got so that I was better at it. But I was just overhead casting and using uh, the spay rod and using the hybrid lines we made from scratch. 
and uh, I had a great time. Caught some fish, and uh, but the rod was soon, soon replaced. I, I got together with um, Sage, and soon enough that clunky rod was replaced by a, a Sage two-hand rod. But um, yeah, so yeah, no, there was so much excitement back then. At least you know, and but in terms of what we were doing, it was like so new, Dave. You know, we had new rods, yeah. new lines. New reels, new fishing, and we were, we were, um, as I wrote in this new book, you know, we were just slaves to the whole idea of being in Scotland and fishing. This was, we were uh, naming pools and establishing our own, uh, our own history, our fly fishing history on these rivers. And, uh, and I certainly was not, I mean, I followed other people um, that were already in place, like Harry Lemire. I mean, uh, when I was barely able to uh, throw a line with my with my spay rods, I you know you watch Harry spay cast, and it was so cool to watch him go down a, a run with that 15 foot rod and flicking that line across the river it was just way cool. No back cast, of course, at all. But uh, so that's that's kind of my take. It was the, there was a newness on it, and there were steelhead in the river too. I mean, look at the Thompson. The Thompson, yeah, the Thompson Steelhead right. is tragic. The Thompson Steelhead is about ready to go extinct. The government could care less. We've begged and done everything to the government to try to come to the rescue of those Steelhead, but they are totally tied into the row, um, the row industry, but that the uh, First Nation people. So they they could care less about Steelhead. They they the success of the people, the First Nation people. That's what the the Thompson is all about. Oh, and where is the Thompson? Remind us again. Where, where does the Thompson flow into? The Thompson flows into the Fraser. Yeah, in the Fraser, right? Yeah. So it, it, traditionally, I mean, uh, Spence's Bridge is a nothing little town, and people would collect at Spence's Bridge, and then they would fish the river. And uh, those steelhead, the bucks, were three year bucks. That was the typical Thompson buck steelhead was three years and twenty pounds. Wow. And the hand fish would be two years and 15 pounds and if you want to see a fish that will uh, turn your um, salmon reel your salmon reel quick into a blender one of those thompson hens running down river cannot be stopped even if you had doesn't matter what you had going after them and uh they're fantastic they're supposedly the hardest strongest steelhead in the world they've done stress tests with these fish in in tanks where there's a current running on them and they have said, I mean, biologists in British Columbia have said these are the toughest fish in the world. They're almost extinct, wow. and they're huge. Well, it's interesting about the time, because I always think of, you know, you think when the steelhead runs, and you could tell the, you know, tell the story as well as anybody, but, you know, you start down south, go down wherever, in New Mexico or wherever the steelhead used to have their distribution, and it's like those runs were hammered the worst, and then as you get up, the further you go north, maybe the better the runs get. But this isn't the case, because we're talking B.C., so why do you think the Thompson sticks out, or do you think just all rivers are kind of at that point, or, or many rivers are similar? It's just, why is the Thompson no. so close to where it's at? Thompson Steelers are so close because the First Nation people, the indigenous people, they have a, uh, it's a complicated story, but basically the lower Fraser has a chum run, chum salmon run. And uh, the scientific name for that salmon is Keta. And uh, Keta caviar is a, is a gourmet treasure all over the world. Mm. And there's a company in Vancouver that processes 
I've interviewed the the guy who is the international distributor for Salmon Row, who works at the uh, processing plant there in Vancouver. And uh, he won't even say that the uh, natives are the ones that bring them all the salmon, but the natives have an exclusive rights. They they, uh, bring all the chum salmon, either sex, to the processing plant. The females are stripped of the eggs. I have no idea what's done with the carcass. I asked about it, whether they use it in pet food, and he wouldn't answer me. I think they just dump them back in the river, uh, which supplies a hell of a lot of biomass. But uh, yeah. And that is a run that is massive. And believe it or not, it's supported by a hatchery. There's a hatchery that, that uh, puts more than a million young chums in the system so that there'll be more chums for the uh, First Nation people. And the few steelhead left run at that exact time. So the lower Fraser has got gill nets stretched oh, wow. for miles, and hardly any steelhead will get through. And the natives hate the steelhead. They don't want to hear about it. If they get a fish in their, in their nets that's still alive, they will take it, pull it out of their nets, and throw it back in the river. But there's more nets upstream of that. So very few of these steelhead, I think I was reading last time I heard, I don't know, a few dozen steelhead got, got through to spawn. They closed it to fishing years ago. That's about all the British Columbia fishery people can expect out of the government. And uh, that's an international treasure. I fished in 2019. I went to Norway and fished. Those people know about the Thompsons. And not just, I mean, most of them, I got to say, most of them did have my book, which is very flattering. And I really uh, appreciated that. But those people know about steelhead fly fishing, and they know if they're going to go pay a bunch of money, a thousand bucks a day or more, to fish for steelhead, they'll all go to the Skeena drainage. And even that's not holding up. The uh, Skeena runs are way down. I know. We were just up there. I fished the Skeena the first time uh, this year since, uh, gosh, it's been over 10 years for me. So, um, so yeah, it wasn't quite the same. Where were you fishing? Uh, we actually fished the main stem Skeena at, uh, at Niska's uh, Lodge on, uh, you know, at the uh, uh, Skeena Riverside the Spay Lodge. Kind of out of, uh, right out of, uh, out of uh, I'm trying to think now, what is it? Is it Terrace? I think it's out of Terrace, BC. Oh, well down. Yeah, well down. We're lower. Yeah, we're fishing. It's cool because we're fishing the main stem. I've never fished that big of a river for steelhead, so it was pretty cool. Did you use uh, shooting heads to cover more ground? Yeah, we just used, uh, it was kind of like uh, Skagit heads. Yeah, we just basically used Skagit, just, you know, like in with dry, it was kind of a, a their style. So it was uh, Skagit and just, you know, little floating shooting tips. Huh. Did you cast overhand? No, no, it was all spay. No, it was all kind of working on our spay casting and, uh, you know what I mean, like normal kind of Skagit-style casting. Well, good for you guys. Yeah. And you didn't yeah. get any fish? Oh, uh, we did. No, we got some fish, definitely. Uh, we got some fish, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, we weren't catching fish left and right. I think everybody had, a, you know, basically a shot at a steelhead. I think almost everybody landed one. Um, I The biggest thing that blew me away is I haven't done this. You probably have a lot more experience, but I caught some amazing coho that were just chrome bright. I thought were steelhead. I mean, literally till the very end until I got them in, I was like, wow, that's a, that's a coho. I thought it was a steelhead. So I was, I was just as amazing. I've caught tons of steelhead like you. I mean, I, I, you know what I mean? I know you've caught more, but it's just like when you catch a certain number of fish, I mean, it's more about, for me, it's not about the catching as much now as like just the experience of being out there. And that's, what's kind of sad now, because I know a lot of people will never get what you had. 
right? I mean, at least where we are now. I mean, do you think you do you think there's a chance that things are going to turn around here? You know, I do. If uh, if people will, uh, yeah, uh, it's possible. It just it depends on people's attitude. Uh, there's always been an attitude uh, way back in the day when we had uh, pioneers that uh, we had all this uh, abundance of everything. And the idea was that you just use it up until it's gone, and then you move on and find something else to, to uh, plunder. And that's kind of inborn, you know, when the, if the steelhead are abundant uh, and you're catching one after another, people won't stop. Uh, they'll, uh, you know, what they, the old-timers call hardmouth. They'll hardmouth every steelhead they get their hands on. And um, Bill, Bill Bakke, who is a legendary um, um, yep. conservationist for Oregon trout. And, but anyway... Uh, you know, he suggested that uh, we should be able to uh, fish just a hook shank with a fly on it, with no hook mm-hmm. in it. And then if you get a rise from the fish, that you're, uh, you know, you've had a, a good day. And uh, I, I don't know whether it'll come to that or not, but it may very well uh, with uh, all kinds of pressure. But if we could bring the steelhead back if we didn't depend on hatcheries and we uh, and we allowed the steelhead to go up and spawn and not be bugged. And uh, natural spawning could bring those rivers back if the rivers were not otherwise compromised by uh, Indian netting. And that's, from uh, so many of these rivers, that's the, um, that's the unknown. Um, on the West End, where we've got the, those huge winter steelhead, and I think that's really going downhill. And the summer run steelhead over there is almost gone. I think, yeah. but, um, you know, I think that if somebody with a lot of money could come in and uh, pay the Indians not to net at a certain time and make it so, so, um, extravagantly wealthy. Yeah. Like, like a deal they can't refuse, right? Give them a deal they can't refuse. Yeah. And let's say, okay, let's, we're going to close all your netting and we're going to bring in world, um, people from all over the world to fly fish your rivers. And, of course, yeah. then the bait guys would say, you know, how about us? Why can't we do this? But if somebody came in there and paid the tribal councils enough money to close the river so that, uh, and, you know, within a couple of years, it would pay for itself because you've got the casinos, you've got the hotels. Um, people could come in there and, and they would could expect to pay three or $4,000 a day to fish for rivers full of big winter steelhead. They'd pay it. You know, when you get to a certain level of wealth, it's not about how much money it costs. It's how, what the experience is and how much that, you know, the experience means to you. And, uh, I mean, there's rivers that uh, two or $3,000 a day is, is cheap for some of the European rivers. And, and the Norwegian rivers, oh my. The rivers I fished in Russia on the Kola Peninsula, my favorite river is the Yukanga. And I got some beautiful Atlantic salmon out of that river. And that, that river, I think, is... Before the uh, war in the Ukraine, I think that river was like sixteen, eighteen thousand dollars a week or something like that. And I couldn't touch that that fee. There are some obvious conservation uh, issue uh, matters that will have to be done. And one of them is that uh, you know if you really want to save steelhead in a river and you don't want to fly fish, and most don't, then you you cannot fish from the boat. And uh, out in the peninsula, they've already done that uh, so that you can't, if you're a fly fisherman, quote, unquote, 
you can't fish a bobber to bead. And if you're a, um, a gear fisherman, you can't troll back troll uh, plugs because those uh, methods, you can find every steelhead in the river. There's no place where a steelhead can hide if you do that. Where with if you're fly fishing or even spoon fishing, there's water that you is better than other water. So you kind of have to select the water you fish. So there's a little there's a places where steelhead can go where they're not going to get nailed. But the present methods where you're pulling plugs or fishing bobber to beat, every inch of the bottom is found. So uh, here on the Klickitat, uh, people prefer, I mean, a lot of the fly fishermen, uh, a majority of fly fishermen who come to this river will fish a bobber to beat. And they will have a day where they catch and release uh, fish a lot, all day. And that's in September, in October less so. By November, the fish are all beat up. Because they're getting recycled. Uh, you're catching the same fish again and again. We're going to take it out of here with our uh, with our listener shout-out segment. And we've had a few people that have uh, kind of checked in and wanted to ask some questions. And uh, this listener shout-out is presented by uh, Smitty's Flybox. So smittysflybox.com. Uh, they've got their own cool story. I'm not sure. Uh, Trey, are you a basketball fan? Or are you a sports fan? I'm a sports fan. Yeah, yeah. Well, you probably know this name. Smitty's. Um, so Smitty's Flybox, his dad, who created... Um, they sell a lot of the flies for the round rocks to like Sportsman's Warehouse. Well, well, Bobby Knight was a good friend of the family, right? The, the famous coach from Indiana. And, uh, and Smitty's was telling, I had Steve on the podcast. He was talking about the story of Bobby Knight and things like that. And he's getting older as well. Things like, you know, I think uh, that's part of the thing, you know, but, um, but want to give a shout out to Smitty's. Um, they have some great fly patterns, but our listener shout out today is with Cody Bloom, who came in and he was asking about um, the craziest thing you've ever seen a steelhead do. That was his question. Do you have any memories of a crazy steelhead you, you would want to share here? Craziest thing I've ever seen a steelhead do. Um, My guess is you, you've had a few big fish. Yeah, no, the, the, the most dramatic thing that steelhead do are what henfish do. Well, they steelhead mm. grab, grab a fly and head downstream. And where most Chinook salmon, if they're hooked, do not try to return to the ocean, although it happens if you're not oh, in tide water. Right. But they'll try to head upstream. But a good henfish will grab your fly and turn and uh, streak out of the pool, go out of the uh, the break, and go down to the next pool. And that's right. just classic. Uh, other salmonids don't do that. Uh, it sets them apart from Atlantic salmon or, or any other, you know, any other of the fish. And it happens so fast that uh, I wrote a long story about the steelhead in British Columbia. The henfish kept knocking the paws out of my reel straight up from the impact, and then it would put my reel in the free spool. And uh, it happened so commonly with, um, with the Orbis reels. I had gorgeous jet black Orbis reels that were made in Hunin de los Andes in Argentina. And... Uh, it happened every time. I mean, I had a big henfish, bang, they were uh, in free spool. So I sold them all, and I got a sage reel. And uh, George Cook told me, there's no way these would get knocked mm. out, and they did. I was, <laughs> fish, I was fishing with Lenny Waller, and oh, bang, yeah. a henfish hit hit the fly, turned around, and, and it was so abrupt, and this, it happened so fast that there it was, and back in free spool again. So there's nothing wrong with the sage reels. They were stunning. Uh, and beautifully machined. Yeah. It was just that the steelhead were, and no other fish does that. I've, certainly no Atlantic salmon I've ever heard about will do that. That's a great one. 
No, that's awesome. I never, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had that happen a few times, but I never thought about that, that the, none of the other species actually do that. They just go, you know, all, everything else is going upstream. So they're, they've got their mission, right? I guess Steelhead are on a little bit of a different mission. This is great. Well, we'll talk about, and like we mentioned Smitty's fly box. Talk about a fly. What would be your one steelhead fly if you're going t- tomorrow for, let's just say, summer steelhead? Did you have a favorite pattern? Mm-hmm. It would be a dark fly, and um, I'd probably have a fly with a black wing. Um, yeah, black wing. Yeah. Um, uh, I just, uh, night dancer, Frank Amato's night dancer is my oh, yeah. My, it's been my standard uh, summer and fly forever, and uh, if I tie him on a uh, if I tie the fly on a Waddington shank, uh, which I, I do a lot now, because it, instead of having a hook on there, I have a tiny Japanese bait hook that's barbless, and um, the fish just looks cross-eyed at the hook, and they'll be hooked. And on the other hand, uh, there it's easily it's very easy to remove that hook from it without any damage. So uh, I love the the dark flies. Um, years ago, I was I had booze at the various outdoor shows, and I was pushing uh, mm-hmm. my long range fly fishing. Um, and with a, my, our specialty was marlin. We did I did All that right. for many years, and uh, I pulled into the Long Beach, California show, and there was um, Chico Fernandez, who's one of the pioneers in saltwater fly fishing, and uh, he and I would sometimes hang out and BS and uh, and I asked uh, I saw him pull in and he got out of his car and I had my booth stuff to set up and I yelled up over to him and I says Chico what are they biting on and he said saltwater white and, and freshwater black hmm. and uh, he kind of nailed it that's you know so hmm. and when I was fishing in Norway uh, the, the top fly was black with some electric blue highlights. I mean, you could take that fly to any steelhead river and fish, caught fish with it. Yep, there you go. Perfect. And uh, and I'm just thinking, this is a little selfishly of myself. I I, I, look, I was thinking about where I'm at with this podcast now, and you know we're doing pretty well with it. I I, I think of you when you were back to your you know late 40s and that range. Uh, what advice would you give to yourself? You know, if you think back, or even even me on somebody in this in the fishing you know industry what, what what's if you learned anything along the way yeah never buy a horse <laughs> never buy a horse never get into horses no. there you go so that's yeah. it so that wasn't a good experience for you though doing the horse i guess you hurt your back like you said but the horse business wasn't the best business well no it, it cost me a lot of money when the economy went in the toilet in 2008 oh uh, yeah people were not giving their daughters lessons and we're not buying horses for their daughters and oh wow uh, and uh it, it changed it literally almost overnight but uh no i i've enjoyed i enjoyed that and God, i love to wait a river and, and fly fish it's for me it's hypnotic yeah do you still get out there yeah i've got the river right behind my house oh wow what river is it click attack oh wow you got the click attack right behind your house amazing yeah i live right on the click attack river um there's a little road behind my house called Bluff Road, and uh, there's almost no way if you buy a house there that you can have a, a yard big enough for dogs. And I've got three spaniels, two cockers, and a cockler. Yeah. And so I fenced my whole place. It's not a very big yard, but I can open the side gate, and the dogs have the front and the back to run around in. And uh, 
it keeps them it keeps them healthy and happy and uh when they're uh-huh. happy i'm happy so yeah that's great so how's the how's the click attack have you has it been how's the run been this year on the click i guess it's now it's end of the well it's summertime there should be some fish around now right oh no yeah the uh summer runs start coming up probably in late may yeah. and oh wow during the hot weather uh the the um runoff the snow melt mm, is so strong it out. that the river's right. blown out all summer and then oh, in the right. fall like this morning i got up and it was chilly it was in the probably 50s this morning that's freezing up above and the river immediately will clear and all those steelhead that have come in most of them haven't even been fished on so if you know a good run here and you fly fish you can have a really good day i've done this where we literally hooked fish all day long. Um, I was fishing a little, uh, my little steel flash flies with a dark wing and a little number six bait hook, and the fish kept breaking the bait hooks, which astonished me. Mm. But, uh, yeah, and it's a beautiful river. I came down here just to do this book and have total peace and quiet and privacy. And it's a very, I mean, the town's only, the whole area is only about 1,000 people. Yeah, it's quiet. It's, is it pretty nice living there? Oh, it's on a day like that. I mean, look outside today, and there's not even a cloud yeah. in the sky. It's blue. It's 75 degrees. It's stunning. Perfect. And I promised a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Cottrell, her husband, is the subject of a book chapter in the book. But Jen's going to come down, and we're going to take the dogs for a walk across the park. Perfect. This is awesome, Trey. I think I want to just leave everybody with, uh, let them know, again, flies for Atlantic Salmon and Steelhead at uh, wildriverpress.com. Uh, they can go out there and pick the book up right now. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you again, Trey, for coming on here and doing another episode. I, uh, I hope to get you back on here, you know, down the line. Hopefully we won't wait another five years and we could hear, you know, I'm not sure if you got another book idea. I mean, maybe just tell us that, leave us with that. <laughs> you know, or do you have another, are you thinking another book here or is this your yeah, last t- one you're thinking about doing? Tom wants me to do a a book on, uh, he's going to co-author it with me, and it's going to be on the 100 best steelhead and Atlantic salmon flies, and I'll come up with a, with 100 of uh, steelhead flies, and he'll do 100 of the Atlantic salmon flies. Oh, there you go. Something like that, and it's just it's yeah. just pictures without not a, with not a lot of text. So yeah. uh, it would not be, it wouldn't be anything like that we just came up with. Sure, this is great. All right, Trey, well, uh, thanks again for all the time, and we'll send everybody out there to Wild River Press. And uh, until we talk again, uh, we'll we'll have a good uh, rest of the day and the weekend. Thanks for the opportunity to to, uh, talk about my new book. I appreciate it, Dave. Take care. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country, so if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.